Let's pray together. Father, we come now and we want to place ourselves under your word. And Lord, we pray that your word would define who we are and create for us our understanding of our identity. And Lord, we pray that what would overwhelm us is your indescribable mercy and love. Lord, we pray that the scriptures would convince us that you are good, that you are merciful, that you didn't owe anyone mercy. And the fact that we have experienced your mercy, Lord, we pray that that would become the definitive way that we understand who we are. So, Lord, we ask that you would cause your love to overwhelm us as we look at this passage this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would give us clarity on what you're going to do, what you've promised to do. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to understand the true story of the world that is described for us in the Bible and that we would find our place in that story. We submit all these requests to you in the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> As we begin this morning, I would invite you to open to Romans 11, and we'll be looking at Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. And as you turn there, I just want to front load the application. So I want to give you four words that I hope will be uh, the way that this passage, the way that we all seek to apply this passage to our hearts. The first word is humility. I hope and pray that as we study this passage this morning, it would, it would cause us to be more, more humble. The second word is identity. I hope and pray that the truths in this passage would shape for us our understanding of who we are. The third word is hope. Um, this passage outlines the hope that the scriptures promise to us. And, and these things are all connected because um, who we understand ourselves to be flows right out of our story, how we understand the world to work, and where we think the world is going. So I hope that identity and hope will come together this morning, and then your fourth word is evangelize. So humility, identity, hope, and evangelize by the by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I hope that those four applications will be pressed in upon us as we look into this passage. This passage is about, if, if you look um, in verse 26 there of Romans 11, it says, and in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This passage is about the salvation of Israel. And it was striking to me that I opened the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal and the lead article of the review section is entitled The New Anti-Semitism. And it's about this rising anti-Semitism both here in the United States of America and in Western Europe. That, and, and that's to say nothing of anti-Semitism in the Muslim world. And along with that significant, big, long article, the, the, rise, 
the new anti-Semitism, there was an even more striking article in the opinion section entitled as follows, Can Ilhan Omar, this is a United States uh, Congresswoman, Can Il Ilhan Omar Overcome Her Prejudice? And the whole article is about this woman's anti-Semitism. And it's written, this woman Ilhan Omar, she's a Muslim, this article is written by a lady named Ayan, I hope I'm pronouncing these names correctly, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's a former Muslim. And I want to read to you from this, this lady, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's no longer a Muslim, but I want to read to you her explanation of how she, when she was growing up, became so anti-Semitic. And she's asking the question, can Ilhan Omar overcome her prejudice? And Ayan Hirsi Ali it, has herself overcome this prejudice, and so she's describing this. This is what she writes of her background. She says, um, I'd learned to blame the Jews for everything. And then a few paragraphs later, she goes on and she writes, as a child in Somalia, I was a passive consumer of anti-Semitism. Things would break, conflicts would arise, shortages would occur, and adults would blame it all on the Jews. So, you know, if you, if you ask the question, how does somebody become anti-Semitic? Why, why is it that someone grows to hate the Jewish people? Well, this lady's explaining how it happened in her own case. She writes, when I was a little girl, my mom often lost her temper with my brother, with the grocer, or with the neighbor. She would scream or curse under her breath, Yahud, Jews, followed by a description of the hostility, ignominy, or despicable behavior of the subject of her wrath. It wasn't just my mother. Grown-ups around me exclaimed, Yahud, the way, the, the way Americans use, and I'll just say, uh, dirty words. I was made to understand that Jews, Yahud, were all bad. And, and she, she just goes on this way describing how, in her background, this was commonplace. This is the way that everyone spoke of the Jews. And so you can see how the narrative results in the behaviors, can't you? The narrative is the Jews are at fault for everything. And then the, the, the behaviors that manifest themselves are, therefore, we curse the Jews, we blame everything on the Jews. They're the scapegoats, so to speak. And then I, I thought near the end of this, what, what she does in the, in, the, in, the, in the body of the article is very interesting. She talks about pop population numbers, and she shows how outnumbered the Jewish people are. And then she starts talking about financial numbers. And the reason that's interesting is because often this anti-Semitism goes with this idea that the Jews are wealthy and by their wealth and influence they control the world. And what she shows is actually that, that um, the dollars that are coming out of, out of uh, Muslim causes, uh, they actually outnumber all that the Jewish uh, money, all, all the Jewish money given to, to support various causes. So actually the Muslims outnumber the Jews and that Muslims outgive the Jews, and, and yet this narrative persists in this anti-Semitism. And then there, there's this fascinating paragraph near the end, and I just want to read it to you. Islamists have understood well how to couple Muslim anti-Semitism with the American left's vague notion of social justice. They have succeeded in couching their agenda in the progressive framework of the oppressed versus the oppressor. 
And, and in this narrative, the Jews, of course, are the oppressors, and the Muslims are the oppressed. And she goes on, identity politics and victimhood culture also provide Islamists with the vocabulary to deflect their critics with accusations of Islamophobia, white privilege, and insensitivity. So in other words, when someone like Ilhan Omar is, is called to account for being anti-Semitic, her response is white privilege, Islamophobia, and insensitivity to my background. Now, the reason I bring this up is because the Bible gives us a better story, a far better story in which to root your identity. The Bible does not say root your identity in identity politics of oppressed versus oppressor. The Bible says root your identity in the mercy of God. So here's my question for you this morning. Is God's mercy the defining reality in your life? Is God's mercy the defining reality in your life? If it's not, we need to pray earnestly that it would become so. And we need to work to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ so that the mercy of God, the love of God to us in Christ would begin to eclipse any and every other concern that the culture may be impressing upon us. So I would invite you to look with me at at Romans 11 here, and we'll be looking at verses 25 through 32. And what we're going to see in verses 25 and 26 is how all Israel will be saved. And then in verses 26 and 27, Paul is going to talk about the new covenant benefits that, that Israel is going to get in on when they are all saved. And then in verses 28 through 32, Paul is going to talk about how it is God's intention to bestow mercy on all. Um, as we approach this passage, let me just back up for a second and, and try to set this passage in the broader context of what Paul has been doing in Romans 9 through 11. So this whole section, these, these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, are prompted by the end of Romans chapter 8, which I would say again, if you have not committed the end of Romans, if you've not committed the whole chapter of Romans 8 to memory, I would urge you to do so. I would plead with you to do so. And if you don't know Romans 8, 31 to 39, off by heart, you should remedy that. You should memorize that passage. It is, it, is, it is something that when you're awake in the middle of the night, as I was this week several times, that passage, it will be a mercy and grace of God for that passage to start talking to you, for you to start hearing Paul's words in your mind about how in all these things we are more than conquerors. And there's there's nothing, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's, here's the first, I mean, I hope that this will be like a pillar in our thinking. Romans 9 through 11 is here to prove that last statement. There's nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How's that logic work? Well, it works because what Paul is trying to do is show how the Jews haven't been separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, even though they've rejected the gospel. So what Paul is doing all through these chapters is saying, God's love is sure to you. And don't doubt it because the Jews have rejected the Messiah. 
And then he goes on and he starts talking about how he has this, this uh, unceasing anguish and great sorrow in his heart in 9.2 for the Jews to be saved. He talks in 10.1 about how his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And along the way, he's explaining how there is an elect remnant of Jews, uh, but, but from that, that root of the patriarchs and the trunk of that tree of the elect remnant through the ages, there are some living branches like himself and other Jews who believe, but other Jews are like dead branches that have been broken off. And in their place, these Gentiles have been grafted in. And so there's this divine sovereignty element of this. And then there's also a human responsibility element. And he explains in, at the end of Romans 9 and through Romans 10 and into Romans 11 how these Jews who have been broken off, they pursued salvation as though it were by works. And, and they did not believe the gospel but rejected the Messiah. And then in the passage that we looked at last week, I want to draw your attention back to just a couple of elements, a couple of statements here. Look again at Romans 11, verse 12. Paul says, if their trespass, their rejection of the gospel, means riches for the world, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, and if their failure, that failure to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, means riches for the Gentiles, Gentiles get the gospel, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then... Look at verse 15, where the same kind of argument is made. If their rejection, because they rejected the gospel, means the reconciliation of the world, Gentiles came in, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, resurrection from the dead? And then verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, how much uh, so is the whole lump? If the root is holy, so are the branches. The argument that Paul is making is distinguishing between the Jewish people on the one hand and Gentile people on the other hand. And then the argument that he's making is, yes, they've rejected the gospel, but there's going to come a day when they're going to be fully included. And, and there is a dough that is the remnant, the believing remnant, but there's going to come a day when the lump also is going to be seen as holy. And these, these kinds of thoughts inform what we're going to get into now in verses 25 and 26 where Paul begins to argue that there will come a day when all Israel will be saved. So look with me at Romans 11:25. Paul writes here, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Uh, here's where it's clear, isn't it, that Paul wants his audience to be humble in response to what he's teaching. Lest you be wise in your own sight. And we talked last week about how Paul was admonishing his audience back in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So, so what we want to cultivate in response to these passages is humility. And, and we have abundant reason to cultivate humility, don't we? If we study the scriptures, if we study the book of Romans, we will have read how there, there's no one righteous, not even one, not even us. And, and if we come to understand the mercy of God, we will know, I did not accomplish my salvation by my merit. I didn't deserve this. This was God's free mercy. I didn't make a choice that prompted God to, to let me in on his goodness. I deserve God's wrath and God's justice. 
And if we, if we will make these thoughts the bedrock of, our, of, our, of the superstructure of our minds, the way we think, it will produce humility within us. Um, all of us, I think all of us, can identify with this, this article that, that was in the Wall Street, this, another article that was in the Wall Street Journal this weekend about William Wilberforce. And I was surprised by what this article reveals. This article details how Wilberforce was addicted to opium. And, and the writer of the article, he, he, goes, he catalogs the ways that Christian biographers of Wilberforce have tried to say, well, he used opium, but he wasn't really addicted to it. And, and this guy, this, this writer, um, says Wilberforce began using in 1788 at 29 years old. He acknowledged, as, as his days went on, that if he missed his evening dose, he would wake up sick and be forced to lie in bed with great sneezing and other signs of spasm. His daily dose grew from five grains to 12, 12 grains a day. And, and there were a series of negative effects that the drug had on him as he grew more untidy, indolent, and absent-minded. His eyesight declined. His, his, his brain was, was slowly poisoned by the opium. And the drug affected his mental health, exacerbating his periods of depression. We all have reason to be humble because we can all identify with an addict. We all know I'm addicted to sin. And, and, and it's only the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit that can overcome these things. This guy, Timothy McMahon King, he writes this. The fact of Wilberforce's addiction completes his story rather than tarnishing it. His losing fight against addiction shows the fullness of his humanity and should help us see the humanity of those who struggle in the same way in the modern world. Because so much of the addiction around us is opioid addiction. It's a related struggle. We, we, we believe the gospel, and we believe in the sinfulness of humanity. And, and so we should be, this should produce in us, humility. Nor should we be astonished when it comes out that a hero like this dealt with something Awful. We know what it is to be human. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. It's interesting that Paul would say this because in his day, there were, there were groups of people who wanted to keep the mysteries to themselves. In fact, you may have heard of the Gnostics. This is one, this is one uh, aspect of, of Gnostic teaching. We have inside knowledge of the mysteries, and we're not sharing that knowledge with other people. This is one of the big differences between Gnostics and Christians. Gnostics say we have these secret mysteries, and we're not giving them to you unless you come, somehow uh, attain access to who we are. Christians say, like Paul, I want you to know the mystery. And, and look at the three aspects of the mystery that, that Paul is saying here. Number one, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And this hardening that he's talking about here is the same hardening that he had described in 11.7 when he says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So this partial hardening has come upon the nation of Israel. There's an elect remnant within the nation that has received the gospel and believed the gospel, and then the rest of the nation have been, they've been hardened. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. 
That's the first aspect of the mystery. Number two, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We'll come back and talk about this in just a second. And then number three, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, people understand those statements differently. So I want to, I want to consider with you briefly some of the ways that other interpreters interpret these statements. There are some interpreters who say that when Paul means, when Paul says, in this way all Israel will be saved, what he means is the Israel of God that represents the people of God of all ages. So this would be the Jewish believing remnant, and it would be Gentiles who've believed in Jesus. And so what Paul is talking about is all the true believers of all ages. And so when he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, and then he goes on to uh, quote these texts from the Old Testament about uh, the, the new covenant blessings that God is going to give to his people, he just means all believers of all ages. I don't think that explanation works because throughout this passage, Paul has been distinguishing between Israel and the nations. And, and I think if he were going to now use the word Israel, not to talk about ethnic Israel, he would need to establish that. He would need to say, at this point, I'm going to start using the word Israel, maybe the way that I use it over in Galatians 6. I don't know what he would say, but I think in one way or another, he could communicate. I'm not talking about Israel as opposed to the nations, like I've been doing with this whole olive branch thing, talking about the wild olive branch and the cultivated. Now I'm talking about the Israel of God that is all the people of God. I, I, I think that Paul, if he meant that, he would do that, and he doesn't do it. So I think he's continuing to talk about ethnic Israel as opposed to Gentiles. Other people look at this and they say, well, this must mean the remnant within the nation, the believing remnant within the nation of all ages. And that believing remnant continues to be added to right up to the time when Jesus returns. And what, so what Paul means here is uh, all Israel in the sense of all the believing remnant of the Jewish people of all ages, that's who's going to be saved. And here again, I think this doesn't accord with what Paul has said. And this is one of the reasons I drew your attention to uh, verses 12 and 15 and 16, where Paul seems to say, okay, they've been rejected, but they're going to be accepted. And, and if their trespass means riches for the world, how much more their full inclusion? And if the dough is offered as first fruits, so the whole lump. So Paul seems to be setting us up for, we've got a believing remnant, but one day all of them are going to be included. And, and so that reading seems to me to be the best explanation, that Paul is not talking about all Israel in the sense of Jews and Gentiles, the church, and he's not talking about the elect remnant. No, he's talking about all Israel. Now, one more, one more qualifier. Some people look at this and they say, oh, every Jew of all time. Uh, don't think that works because Paul has explained in Romans 9 and 10 and 11 how some of these Jews have been hardened and how God has chosen some Jews and not others. So we have to have an understanding of, of what Paul is saying here that fits with everything that he said to this point. And I, I submit to you that the best under, the understanding that fits best is the idea that Paul is talking about all living Jews on the day of Christ's return. And I think that there are these, 
these indicators here in this passage that point in that direction. So one of them is there in verse 25 when he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And, and this fits. This is why we read Matthew 24 earlier in the service. This fits with what Jesus says on that occasion when he says this gospel will be preached, proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So I think in Paul's understanding, the gospel has to go to all the nations because God has, has purchased men, Revelation 5, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So the gospel has to go to all those nations. And then when all the elect have come, when, when they've all come in, when the fullness of the Gentiles have heard the gospel and believed it, then uh, at that point, the hardening is going to be removed. So verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, and now Paul's going to start quoting uh, from Isaiah and the Psalms. And um, I want to I add in here that I think what Paul is doing is correctly interpreting for us the Old Testament. When, when you study these passages, when you study Isaiah and the Psalms and Deuteronomy, you, you come up with this, this framework that God has set things up so that Israel is going to come into the land. You've heard me say this over and over. They're going to break the covenant. They're going to be exiled from the land. But then at the end of all things, they're going to turn back to God, and he's going to restore them. And earlier in the service, we read from the passage that Paul quotes here. But Paul has done some very interesting things here. Paul has combined some bits of Isaiah 59, 20, and 21 with Psalm 14. And, and I want you to look closely at this with me. Um, so in, in Romans eleven twenty six, Paul says, as it is written, and then he starts quoting Isaiah 59, verse 20. The but he's quoting from the Greek translation of it. The deliverer will come from Zion. Isaiah 59, 20 says, a redeemer, synonym, uh, Hebrew rendered redeemer, rendered into Greek deliverer that Paul uses, a redeemer will come to Zion. And Paul has rendered from Zion. And, and I think it has been persuasively argued that Paul takes the phrase from Zion from Psalm 14, verse 7, which reads like this. Listen to Psalm 14, verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel note that, salvation for Israel, would come out of or from Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So across the Old Testament, there are these promises that there's going to come a day when God will restore the fortunes of his people. And what Paul is doing is he's quoting a passage that talks about that, Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, and he combines it with a phrase from another passage that talks about that, Isaiah 14, I'm sorry, Psalm 14, verse 7. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now, my time is getting away from me, so I just want to tell you what I think this means. I think it means that Jesus is going to come from the heavenly Jerusalem. He's going to, on the day of the second coming, Jesus is going to come and, and every living Jew alive, every, every Jew alive on that day will perceive that the Christ has come. And they will come to understand that this is that guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who got crucified. 
and they will understand he really was the Messiah. And he really was what those Christians have been telling me. He was the incarnation of Yahweh. And he died as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And they will repent of their sins. And they will place their faith and hope in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And they will be saved. So Romans eleven twenty six. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob meaning the people of Israel. Ungodliness meaning all idolatrous ways of thinking about life. All wrong thinking about Jesus. All rejection of God. All objections to God's word. All that's going to be banished from their hearts when they see Jesus. And then they're going to experience the new covenant blessing, verse 27. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He will come. He will banish ungodliness. Look at verse 26. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. It is what, what Paul is describing is a time when the glory and the beauty of Christ is so compelling that every false thought is banished from the hearts of his people. So I would say to you today that if you want to fight sin in your life, and I hope you do, if you want to fight sin in your life, what you need is you need to experience Jesus. He's in the business of banishing ungodliness from his people. So, look, we can, we're all sinners. We can all identify with Wilberforce. And what we all need is to experience the risen Christ in our lives. We all need the word to wash us clean. We all need the word to remind us of the true story. We all need the scriptures to align our hopes with what God has promised so that we don't hope for vain things that are going to perish. We don't hope for forbidden things. We don't hope for things that are going to disappoint us. Maybe, I, don't, I, don't, I think I mentioned this recently, I read recently that, that Kevin Durant thought that winning a championship was going to fix everything for him. He won a championship, and all that did was set him on a course to understand the meaning of life. What is life about? He, 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 he realizes this doesn't fix everything. This, this doesn't make everything right. I need to understand what life is for. And this is what the gospel gives us. This is what the scriptures tell us. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And then Paul says, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away my sins. Have your sins been taken away? Have you experienced forgiveness? Do you, do you know what it's like to know that every dark thought, every horrible thing that you ever said, I mean, I can think of, I can, I can think of, things that I have said that I am too embarrassed to relate to you. They are so wicked. I could go on thinking of things. It's awful. And it's all forgiven. It's all paid for by the blood of Christ. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. If you will experience Jesus, if you will trust in him, your sin can be forgiven. Now, what Paul is going to do in verses 28 through 32 is he's going to explain this, this overarching understanding of, of God's program, God's plan for the world. 
And it basically goes like this. This, is a, this, is, this was a mystery. So the three parts of the mystery, number one, verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Number two, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Number three, there will come a day when all Israel will be saved. And now Paul says, okay, here's how history works. Christ comes, the Jews reject him. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. And all the Gentiles are going to be saved. And then there's going to come a day when he comes and all the Jews living at that time will be saved. So look at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. It's like Paul is saying, it was God's plan for the Jewish people to reject my message so that I could take the gospel to the Gentiles. That was God's plan, for the gospel to go to the nations after the Jews rejected it. And then he goes on, look at verse 28, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. They are beloved. God's people are beloved. God set his love on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a promise to those, those men, and so their descendants are beloved. And then he says in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, God has no remorse. God feels no regret about the promises that he made, promises, promises that include the restoration of the Jewish people. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, and here I think he's talking about in that era prior to the coming of Christ, prior to the gospel going to the Gentiles, when we were, all of us who are not Jews, we were a bunch of pagan idolaters, uh, cannibals, blood drinkers, sexually immoral, worshiping Zeus and Baal and all these horrible things. That's who we were, just as at one time you were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they disobey and reject the gospel, and God's mercy gets extended to us. So, verse 31, they too have now been disobe disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, and I think he's talking again about the way that he magnifies his ministry to provoke the Jews to jealousy. By the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So there's going to come a day when the Jews will receive mercy. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So if you've ever asked the question, why is it that God set the world up in such a way that every human being would be a sinner? Why is it that God has set the world up in such a way that we all descend from Adam and we are all alienated from God, we are all estranged from God? There's your answer. Because he wants, he wants everyone to know what mercy is. And, and the all here, I think, that he's referring to are both Jews and Gentiles. So the, the Gentiles are placed under sin so that God can show mercy to them. The Jews are placed under sin so that God can show mercy to them. There is no better way for us to understand our identity than for us to embrace this idea of God's mercy. It will produce in us humility. If we come to know, if we come to, to taste and see that the Lord is good and that his mercy has reached even unto us, we will be, we will be humble, rejoicing people. And there's a hope here, isn't there? 
There's a hope. You know, um, this week I've been, I've been re-listening to uh, Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. And what struck me this time through is that, is that as her, what Corey Ten Boom did was heroic, glorious. But you know, there was soil out of which that beautiful flower grew. And the soil of that beautiful flower in part was a father who loved to evangelize Jews. If, you, if you've read the book, maybe you remember the story about how he would, he would take her with him on these trips and he would go and he would buy pieces of, of watches and clocks and things from Jews. And once they got the business transacted, they would get the Bibles out and they would begin to, they would begin to go through the scriptures. Corey Ten Boom's father is Casper. He's evangelizing Jews. And then her brother, who comes into the story, he's got a good part, he's a good guy. He's, he's leading the Dutch Reformed Church's outreach to the Jewish people. These are people who understand the gospel. These are people who feel Paul's heartbeat, a heartbeat that says, I feel great sorrow and unceasing anguish, and my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And there's prayer, and then there's action. So we want to we want to evangelize the Jewish people, and we also, uh, uh, Chris, I think, in his prayer, he referenced this passage in in Second Peter three, when he says, Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, hastening the coming of the day of God? Here's how you hasten the day. You preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Because when all the elect Gentiles have heard, then the end will come. And then every living Jew will be saved. So I hope that from this passage, we get our identity. We are people who are mercied. Life is not oppressed and oppressor. Life is not about the fight between them. Life's about God. And life's about, are you under God's mercy or are you under God's wrath? That's who we want to be people who identify with, with the love of God, the mercy of God. That'll produce in us humility. That will ground our hope, and it should prompt us to evangelize. Let's pray together. Father, I think of the heroic evangelistic efforts not only of people like Casper Tinboom and, and his son Willem and his daughter Corey and her sister Betsy. Lord, I think also of a man like Origen, who, because he wanted to evangelize his Jewish contemporaries, undertook the massive work of scholarship that is the Hexapla, where he laid these these witnesses to your word, these, these texts of Scripture side by side so that he and his Jewish contemporaries could be clear on what the text of Scripture was so that he could try to convince them that the Messiah is Jesus. Lord, I pray that in our day and even here in this church, similar heroic efforts would be undertaken by the power of your grace, by faith in, in Christ as, 
as these things work through love, our love for you and our love for our neighbors, Lord, I pray that we would undertake projects of daring and, and massive scope to try to bring about the salvation of all whom you have appointed for life, whether Jews or Gentiles. So, Lord, I pray that, that as we gather in a few moments to pray for those of us who, those who have gone out from us, Lord, I pray that these prayers would be offered with earnestness, with the goal in mind. I pray, Lord, that as we think about giving away school supplies and inviting people to come to give away school supplies, we would be, we would be good representatives of Christ Jesus and that the gospel would be front and center in our thinking and in these efforts. And Lord, I pray that, that the short-term trips that we're talking about that people are going on, the long-term trips that people have gone on, Lord, I pray that these would be fruitful. I pray your, your repres- the, the people that you have in these places that we've gone to and are going to, and what we will do when we go there, Lord, I pray that it would all bear fruit. Lord, we love you, and we want to live for your kingdom. Help us to align everything that we are, our giving, our planning, our our diligent efforts to stay in touch with those who have gone out from us. Lord, we pray that all of this would be aligned with your kingdom purposes. And we pray that your name would be exalted and that we would be unified in this great task of making disciples of all nations. Lord, we ask that you would do more than we can ask or think. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.